Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Hey guys, welcome back to Worst Year Ever, the show all about the worst year ever. My name's Katie Stoll. Mine's not. It's Cody Johnston. And I am Evans Robert. Evans Robert. Um, today, we have a very special interview with Nithya Raman. Uh, she is a candidate for Los Angeles uh, City Council, 4th District. She is... Really something special, you guys. It, I was so excited to have her on the show. I think we had a great conversation, and I'm just chuffed that you guys get to hear it now. <laughs> I've the been watching a lot of... use that word. <laughs> it is. Um, one of the comforting things I've been doing during the pandemic is re-watching the entirety of the Great British Baking Show, even though I've seen it all. And they say chuffed mm. a lot, and, and apparently that's part of my vernacular now. No going right. back. We can't edit this. No, it's impossible. But it's anyway. Live. This is live. The important thing is that you're about to hear an interview with Nithya and she rocks. Take it away, us. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Nithya Raman, uh, a candidate for Los Angeles's fourth district. Hi, Nithya. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm sure you're incredibly busy right now. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, all things considered. <laughs> all things considered. Yes. Healthy. Um, Can't complain. Good, good. Too I'm, much. Well, yeah, sure. There, there, there are some complaints that can be made, but we need you healthy, um, as we will explore how much we need you uh, throughout this episode. Um <laughs> It's pretty much impossible to be a liberal progressive here in Los Angeles and not know who Nithya is at this point, uh, especially throughout the the pandemic. For the city. 
Yeah, you've you've been a real leading voice, I think, for a lot of us lately. Um, but for our listeners uh, in other parts of the country and the world, Nithya is an urban planner. Uh, she's done a lot of incredibly important work for the in-housed uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, you've also served as the executive director for Times Up Entertainment, uh, furthering equality and safety for women in the entertainment industry. Um, but you can do a better job explaining your background than I can. So could we start by just telling us a bit about the work that you've been doing prior to running for city council? Well, you did a great job oh, right thank there. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm a mother of two. I have twin preschoolers as well. That's probably the only Twins. thing. Yeah. They're wow. four, almost five now, four and a half years old. That's and, a big job in and of itself. Yeah. And it's been, you know, challenging because uh, mm -hmm. their school closed and their preschool closed. And now it's only partly open. And, you know, yeah. anyway. But it's been, a, it's been a journey with them. Yeah. But – Yes, you're right. I'm an urban planner. Um, I've spent most of my career working on urban poverty issues. I spent actually the first part of my career in India, where mm -hmm. I was working with people who lived in slums and informal settlements there and okay. who were fighting for things like running water, for toilets and for land rights. Uh, the way I got into that work was that I saw that there was a huge slum eviction happening in the city that I was living in at the time, which was Delhi. And there was a massive demolition of a community that had about 100,000 people living in it. And their yeah. homes were raised within just a couple of, like just a few days, if I remember correctly. And it was covered in the English press for just a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And then the story just disappeared. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that a massive community within Delhi had been totally demolished. And that was the entirety yeah. of the coverage. And so I looked for organizations that were working on those issues. I found a group that was organizing residents in that area. Uh, and then the more I started working on those issues, I realized how important local government is, mm -hmm. how important it is for, I think, you know, cities are a real place of opportunity or they can be. And yeah. so for me, the local government was the place where you translate that yeah. into reality. Yeah. And whether you're working in India or whether you're working in the U.S., for me, ensuring that we have eyes on local government, that we're intervening in local government, that we're engaging with it, that became very, very important to me and my career. And that's why I ended up studying urban planning and continuing to work in, at the city level for forever yeah. after that. Yeah, that you're, you're touching on something that I was planning to bring up towards the end, but yeah, we spend a lot of time on this podcast. We, we, we have a, a pretty wide breadth of stuff that we've been covering under the umbrella of worst year ever. Um, but the initial outset of this was an election podcast, and we spent a lot of time talking to people and candidates, uh, organizers who feel disenfranchised, who feel disillusioned that our leaders do not represent what we think and feel and need. Um and frustrated at the people that say one thing but do another. And it all comes back to getting involved at a local level. Um, and, and I mean, it's just it, – it can be very daunting for the average person. But, I, you know, 
I guess now's a good time to, to, to talk on that about like the impetus for you to say like, you know what, I am going to do this. I, I need to actually get involved with this party, with politics, not just the organizing outside of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, Los Angeles is one of those places where the sentiment that you just expressed, this feeling of, I have all these values and mm-hmm. I don't see that reflected in the governance around me. Los Angeles is one of those places where I feel like the disjuncture between that mm-hmm. is the greatest. Yeah. You know, we've had a city yeah. government here that has been so narrowly serving the interests of really those people who have already been elected to power. It's essentially been serving their interest in staying in power. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been serving a group of donors who've been involved in city council campaigns for a number of years, mostly those who want to profit from the city, you yeah. know, whether it be real estate, whether it be um, landlords, whether it be um, uh, cannabis, whether it be, I mean, there's all kinds of industries that end up donating big to city council campaigns, billboard companies, styrofoam companies, fossil fuel companies. I mean, it's you can go on and on, yeah. but essentially people who want to influence decision making at city hall. And that's how Decision-making has happened for for a really, really long time. But in this election, we had an opportunity to really blow that wide open because for the first time in L.A., where elections have been really low participation affairs. So just to give you an example of how low participation they have been, in this district, in the previous general election, a total of 24,000 voters voted, right? So those were split between two candidates. Mm -hmm. In my primary, um, because our elections are now overlapping with federal elections, turnout exploded. And because mm-hmm. we did so much work to get out the vote and to inform people that they needed to look down ballot, we had over 76,000 voters. Wow. Just wow. in the primary That's election. incredible. Right? So every district that was voting at the same time saw an increase, right? Mm-hmm. Because just because more people were just at the polls. Yeah. But because we did so much get out the vote work and because we did so much door knocking, we knocked on 83,000 doors in the primary yeah. with our volunteer support. It was crazy. And Los Angeles districts are big. I mean, there are yeah. 104, well, don't quote me on this number, but there's like 140,000 registered voters, let's say, in this district, 250,000 yeah. residents just an enormous number of voters in each district. Uh, And so we had this opportunity to say, hey, guys, you're probably going to be voting already. And here's something that you -hmm. should care about. Here's something that matters for you. Here's something that matters for the health of the residents you see who are living on the streets in front of your home, potentially. Um, Here's something that we could change in L.A. that would absolutely transform all of our lives and inviting them to participate in the local election. And it, it totally worked. You know, it really, really worked. That yeah, I was of voters is just amazing. Yeah, yeah I was really exciting. was really floored in, in prepping for this. I, I knew it was close, but <laughs> running against the incumbent, David Ryu, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you got 41 percent of the vote to his 45 percent. And he outspended, uh, outspent you more than three to one. Yeah, and, and you if got, you count if you count pack money even more, yeah, you really outspend. We should dig into that a, a little bit. I want to go back and talk before we talk about him. I want to talk about your platform and what what you focus on. We, we've already been talking a bit about it. 
Um, but a big focus on your campaign is on the unhoused, uh, on rent forgiveness. Uh, just as a starting point, we'll get into the other aspects of it. But this is something that we needed to be addressing anyway, but especially now during the pandemic. And I would love to start off by by hearing a little bit about your plans and about what the stakes are here. Yeah. So let's talk about renters, because mm-hmm. I think that doesn't I talk a lot about homelessness on the campaign trail. I've talked about it a bunch on my website. Yeah. And I, I would love to talk a little bit about renters, yes, because please, I please. think because I think what we've set up in Los Angeles right now is, uh, you know, we have a city where we have majority renters. Right. So yeah. the majority of people here do not own their homes. They rent either in single family homes or in apartments. And we've had a huge increase in rents over the last decade. We've seen a 67 percent increase in rents just wow. over the last 10 years. Just a incredibly striking increase with no commensurate increase in wages, right? So the wages of renters are not going up, but their rents are going up and up and up. And so we have this situation here where renters are feeling ever more squeezed in this city. And we have tenant protections on paper, right? So this is where I think there is this real sense of, oh, this is a progressive city. We already have, we must have all these rules in place already or whatever. But in reality, we have not set up a system through which we can actually enforce a lot of those tenant protections Mm -hmm. when residents are actually trying to get the help that they need or get the get the information that they need. It's just not available. I'll talk about one thing, which I think is incredibly important. So we don't have a database of rentals here in Los Angeles. Right. So in a city that's really defined by renters, Mm -hmm. we don't have a comprehensive database of renters and landlords. That means that the city does not proactively send out information to both tenants or to landlords, informing them about their rights, informing them about their obligations, telling them about changes in rules. So when we actually changed our evictions protections at the beginning of the pandemic, council members had to go and ask the housing department to send out information to the smaller subset of units for which they did have records because they don't automatically tell Mm -hmm. people about those changes. They don't collect the kind of information that would actually enable Los Angeles to hold landlords to account for enforcing rules that are already on the books about tenants' rights, right? So so we've set up a system where it's very, very hard for tenants to actually realize the rights that they have on on paper. We also don't have a guaranteed right to a lawyer for tenants who are facing eviction. This is in a city that is defined by a housing and homelessness crisis that has seen the experience of other cities that have done this. So New York has done this. San Francisco has done this. Other cities that have had incredible affordable housing crises like ours have have provided tenants facing eviction a lawyer. And the evidence shows over and over again that when tenants have access to a lawyer, they are able to stay in their homes. This mm-hmm. is incredibly important, again, to being able to actually realize the rights that we have on paper, right? But we haven't done that in Los Angeles. So these are the ways in which I think we can think about actually providing the scaffolding for people to be able to thrive here in L.A., yeah. to be able to stay in their homes here in Los Angeles. And the kind of focus that we need to have to understand what is wrong with our system right now that is allowing so many people to fall through the cracks, you know, yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I think it's incredibly important. Another thing that we talked about in the primary all the time was a rent freeze. So we don't have um, rent control here in L.A. What we have is rent stabilization, mm-hmm. right? Which means that certain apartments, which were built before a particular year, are covered by the rent stabilization ordinance, which means that rents can only rise a limited percentage every year. That covers about 80 percent of apartments in the city. Right. So that it's not all of the rental units because there's a ton of rentals that are in the single family home, um, it, you know, right. area. And so there's it's not comprehensive, but it is a large percentage of our renter base. So we could have this whole time been using our control over rent stabilized units to actually help. Keep rents lower to make it a zero percent rent increase for a year or two to allow people's wages to catch up with their rents. Mm -hmm. We never did that Mm -hmm. except when COVID hit. So Mm -hmm. right at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually used those powers to make sure that we instituted a rent freeze um, in these units. So what that tells me is that we had that power this Mm -hmm. whole time and we never used it despite the fact that rents were skyrocketing. You know, and so that's really what when you talk about the gap between kind of the rhetoric or people's values and the reality of what the government is doing um, and where I see those gaps in Los Angeles is so clearly in how they've responded to their immense powers here in L.A., um, which is mostly to look away from those powers, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. Um, And now, because so many more people are engaged on these issues, so many more people are getting informed on these issues, I think we have a real opportunity to make sure that we hold them accountable for using those powers to benefit us, to keep us safe, to keep us housed. Yeah. Yeah, that feels like this is a great example of so many things that we see happening with our government when we talk about health care and access to it. Like, well, that's not possible. It is possible. There's lots of stuff that's possible. There, there, There are... Answers to all of our problems if people are willing to not turn away from it. And the reality is, is that so many of the people that we have elected uh, benefit from the status quo, benefit in different ways from not changing the system. But you're right. Push comes to shove. We can make these things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to just I want to yeah. just talk about one one thing about the fact that the there's a reason why these changes haven't happened either. Right. So mm-hmm. last year there was a push to actually uh, create a rental database at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a significant lobbying push to make sure that that didn't happen, mm-hmm. you know, and because I think it would have made it harder for a certain group of residents here in Los Angeles, right? Made it harder yeah. for apartment owners, for larger corporate owners to be able to go about their business the way that they would have preferred to. And I think we have to be cognizant of who is, you know, pushing for changes and who our elected officials have traditionally been listening to and make sure that the rest of us make our voices heard. The rest of us make put our own pressure on our elected officials to do the right thing. So there's no sort of database that lists, you know, who owns what building, what rent is being charged and or. There's a limited database, which was only created in 2017 of just rent stabilized units, and it does not collect information about rent being charged. So even though there's rules about how much rent can increase, the city actually does not collect the information required to hold landlords accountable for following those rules. And I would guess Terrible. that most people don't know that they live in rent-stabilized right. units. 
Oh, right. absolutely. There, yeah. I, mean, I will say wow. even rent stabilization. I, I lived in a stabilized place for five years and my rent went up a lot over the time I moved because it was now reaching a point that was no longer affordable after four and a half years, five years, you know, and that's fine. I'll move on. And now he's charging so much more than what I left it at. Um, but I was grateful that it wasn't being hiked up every year an absurd amount. Uh, so I was grateful for that, at least. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Yeah, I just wanted to um, see sort of, um, I know you have this program, Sela. Is it Sela or Sela? Sela, yeah, it's a nonprofit Sela. that um, I started because before. There's so many, yeah, there's so many ways that um, people fall through the cracks, and um, you have a lot of ideas on how to help people that have already fallen through the cracks, which we see more and more of. I just wondered if you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I talked about renters and tenants' rights and stuff, and I think there's two other things that we need to be doing to address our housing and homelessness crisis head on. One is to promote the construction of more affordable housing, mm-hmm. and that there is a, yes, yes. you know, I have I have some um, policies that are on my website about that already, and I invite people who are interested in that to take a look. And we're actually going to be updating some of that in the coming weeks, which I'm very excited about. But I think for homelessness, the way that we respond to homelessness now in Los Angeles, I think there's a lot of ways in which we can make that process significantly better. And some of the ways in which we can make it better are um, things that I learned from my work in SELA. So when I was at, I actually worked at City Hall a number of years ago, and I wrote this report about how the city was responding to homelessness in 2014. And I found that the city was spending over $100 million on homelessness without really counting it as homelessness-related spending, but that almost 90% of it was spent putting unhoused individuals in jail, right? Uh-huh. So that was the, where the bulk of the money was going. 90% was towards, of it. Yeah, it was about $87 million, almost 90%, $87 million was being spent on 
on jailing people who were experiencing homelessness. A, a response which is both, it is just cruel, inhumane. but it also, it's inhumane, but it also does not address the reason for why that person mm-hmm. uh was violating laws that you have in this city. Like they were probably violating laws like sitting or sleeping on the street or public drinking or, um, you know, having a shopping cart. These are all municipal codes which are on the books, which essentially criminalize the very act of being homeless, of not having a home. Of being alive. (laughs) Of being alive without a place to to go and park your things. Exactly. And so that had been our response to homelessness in Los Angeles for many, many years. And so what we were trying to do in SELA was to develop an alternative to that very punitive model and to say in our neighborhood, just through a bunch of volunteers, is there a way that we can get to know people who are experiencing homelessness? And is there a way that we can ensure that they're able to build relationships with outreach workers and case managers who can actually help them navigate a very long process of getting housing and getting off of the streets or potentially getting help like uh, mental health help or addiction support or whatever it is they may need to actually start their journeys off of the streets. And so that's what we did in SELA. We we started with just a group of volunteers going out and doing outreach to encampments. And now um, I'm not, I stepped down from the board to run for the seat, but now we have multiple locations across Los Angeles uh, in, in this area, in this part of Los Angeles, where there is a shower truck that comes in where there's food that's served and where a case manager comes in every week um, at each of these locations and works with residents to make sure that they're moving along that process. And this effort, like in every other neighborhood where a group of people have come together and put outreach and services first, it has worked to get people housed. And so what we're saying in our response to homelessness in, in, in the campaign is can we put services first? Can we put outreach first? And there has been more investment in outreach over the past couple of years, thanks to greater funding from something called Measure H. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is making sure that that funding is delivered at the neighborhood level, making sure that outreach workers are stationed in each neighborhood, that they get to know individuals in those neighborhoods yes. Yes. by name, and that actually that residents can hold them accountable you know, mm-hmm. for moving people along that long process of getting housed. And not calling the cops who don't know and, what yeah. they're doing. And exactly. To throw away their stuff. And, and throw away their stuff and harass yeah. them and hurt them in unspeakable and, things. Yes. And, and that for nonviolent calls for service, that you have an option to call someone who is mm-hmm. an unarmed, trained professional who can help. Uh, an unhoused resident with whatever yeah. they may be needing at that time. So you can you actually have somebody to call that can mm-hmm. come in and address the problems that you're calling about. You know what I love. Uh, there's a lot that I love about this, but the thing that jumped out to me, and what jumps out about your campaign in general, is the, is the humanity of it. How that humanizes yeah. people. Getting to know, having somebody that's dedicated. This is their area. They get to know the people that are there. You get to. Know, know their names. They're not just some person that's there that you ignore and, and you know, call the cops or whatever, you know. And then you can start to get to the root of what they need specifically mm-hmm. because it's not one – like we, we tend to lump people, generalize this. They, they weren't good enough, so they failed. Nope, nope, nope. There are a million reasons 
And it could be any one of us, especially right now, that ends up in this situation. And we have no idea the stress of what that is. Uh, I, I mean, we don't have to. This is just something I wanted to share because it's it struck me. I, I mean, I've been aware of your campaign for a, a while now, I guess over a year. Oh, um, I can't believe I've been running for a year. It's, this is oh crazy. Gosh, what even is this year? It, let time us, is meaningless. Let us talk about how they make this very hard for non non incumbents to ever run for these seats. I do want to. That's the, I definitely <laughs> want to dig into it. But I just want to share based on just this this conversation reminds me of it. If you go to Nithya's Twitter page, uh, you you have a pinned campaign video talking about homelessness and you know the skyrocketing cost of rent, and it really gets me. Um, in it, you spoke with this man named Jeff who's living, you know, he's been unhoused since 1996. He's living by the L.A. River. And he tells a story about how he found a place to live, paid the $900, went to get his belongings and his dog. And then the landlord said, no, we won't let you have a dog here. But that dog has kept him alive. Uh, that dog is his life. And it just gutted me. And I, I have no point, I guess, other than to. <laughs> To share that this is the thrust of what you're focusing on and the work that we need to be doing. Also, I always just think, why can't we do something to allow people to have dogs in their houses? Yeah, they're, I mean, There's they're trying. They're places. trying to get more yeah. of that, you know, of housing where you can bring pets. And because they, you know, I think it's just the progress has been too slow. Yes. I think we need to have... At every level of government, at every level of the bureaucracy, yes. you need to have people in there who feel that urgency to make the change. Yes. And I think unless we have that, we're just not going to see it. There yeah. was another woman that I knew who had a housing voucher. So she got a Section 8 voucher after mm -hmm. years of being on Which a waiting is list. so hard to get. So hard to get. The waiting list is so long. Hundreds yeah. of thousands of people apply every time there's a window to apply. And then she got the voucher and it expired before she could find a landlord who was willing to take it. Yeah. Which happens to a huge percentage Unbelievable. of people who get those Section 8 vouchers. I think half of Section 8 voucher holders, their vouchers expire before they're able to find a landlord who's willing to take it. I mean, it's like the system we've set up is so labyrinthine, so full of pitfalls. I mean, we have to do better at making sure that people are able to access the help that they need to navigate this system. Yeah. And that means just a fo single-minded focus on making it better, yeah. you know? Um, I definitely want to get to running against an incumbent uh, and what this and campaigning during a pandemic. But yeah. first, piggybacking off of this conversation, I, I want to bring up your um, another campaign uh, platform tenant is the, the public broadband. Because this does go hand in hand with solving homelessness crisis, you know, having people's access to being able to do work, but especially, I mean, at any point in time, but again, especially now during this pandemic, you know, was, is it's drawing clear lines in the sand of income inequality. Uh, we have people, kids needing to go to school. Uh, this is all from your, your website, but I'm going to share it as, you know, background for this conversation. A survey from um, the nonprofit Partnership for Los Angeles Schools found that 16% of families didn't have internet access and 20% of families didn't own a computer or tablet. Uh, USC researchers found that one in four families with K through 12 students in LA County don't have access to both a computer and a broadband connection. I, I mean, it goes on and on, uh, you know, some of this information that you shared. Um, and I, I, yeah, I would just love to, to talk about that because this is a real barrier to entry for anybody that wants to take control of their life 
or just survive right now. Um, and so we'd love to hear about your your plans for this. Yeah. So just as background, I think one thing I'll say is that what the exploration that initially drew us to thinking about public broadband efforts, I think, came out of a realization that underinvestment in proactive city services, like a rental registry, like a mm-hmm. proactive effort to protect tenants, like a lack of investment in a right to a lawyer, like lack of investment in some kind of public internet access, all of these things end up ultimately reinforcing kind of racial divides, socioeconomic Mm -hmm. divides that are already existing in the city, deepening those divides. Um, And I think that's incredibly, incredibly important to emphasize that when we choose to underinvest in all of these kind of public goods, we hurt Black and brown Angelinos the most. We hurt lower income working people in Los Angeles the most. And so I think it's really important to think about the context for this in that in that framing, because public broadband, the way we talked about it, the, the thing that we kind of. Are thinking about in that policy proposal is to invest in a public fiber network, Okay, which only a few cities have really invested in. Chattanooga is the most. um, Oh, the the example that's been held up mm-hmm. the most as the most successful um, that's is it, so it, but random. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, other cities have done it through public private partnerships. They've done it through partnerships with Google. Google Fiber had this big effort to partner with cities across America to do this. And while public private partnerships take some of the initial financial investment off of cities they end up not having as positive outcomes in terms of actually access. Mm -hmm. They don't uh, honor sometimes their commitments to ensure access to all, uh, or they just walk away from projects if you actually insist that equity and access be a core component of that partnership, which is what happened in a couple of cities. But so so the investment is upfront is very high. It's expensive. Putting down a public fiber network in Los Angeles would cost something like $3 billion. So it's enormous. Wow. It's a big, big yeah. investment, right? Out of We have an annual budget of only $10 billion here in the city. Right. That's the thing about an investment. Right. <gasps> and and yeah. where But where cities have done it, they've made that money back through yes. revenues because there's an increase mm-hmm. in revenues that comes about. There's an increase in businesses wanting to site in areas where there's faster internet. Right now, Los Angeles has some of the slowest and the most expensive internet in the country. Sure. Uh, and so it's an opportunity to push back against that, right? And to really set it up so that we have this incredible resource here in Los Angeles. So it's not a, so we called it a policy exploration because, sure, yeah. you know, I think it was something that I think we have to consider whether we're able to do, particularly at a time when we have uh, shrinking revenues and mm-hmm. uh, we may be taking on additional loans or really um, issuing bonds to meet people's very, very basic needs, you know, mm-hmm. to keep people housed, to make sure right. people are able to pay their rent. But I do think it's very, very important to consider and something that I want to think about in five years when the economy is back, too. If we don't yep. do it now, let's talk about it when we are thriving. Let's well, talk so about important. making investments in our future. Yeah, it's so important to start having these conversations. Now, we always look to Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, you know, especially Cody here. I don't want to take credit for this. But, you know, uh, prior to 2016, Medicare for all was not something that people considered possible. It's expensive. It's daunting. How do you organize it? And now 
majority of Americans, there's positive polling for this. And, and it is starting the conversations now that is really tricky and hard, but it starts to pull people left. It starts to change the way we look at a problem and how we approach it. Right. Uh, and that's why it's so important. Um, yeah. And for me, I would say it's never been about right or left. It's really yeah. about like, what is the scope of investment that we need to make to address the problem that we're facing here? Yeah. What is the role of the government in making sure that X suffering ends? Or what is the role of government to intervene in this space? And I think opening up the window um, in terms of what is possible, what is doable, mm -hmm. that is such an important part of what Bernie Sanders did. That's a part of what Elizabeth Warren did with her campaign. Mm -hmm. I feel like she she also made it possible for so many more people to come in to a place where they have a more expansive view mm -hmm. of what the government can do, yes. you know? Like yeah. Sanders, of course, did it so much. Um, right. But she expanded it even further. Yeah. Uh, more accessible to different types of people with different uh, perspectives. Yeah. The more people who have some sort of power or leadership role say something is possible, the more people who've been told for so long that it's not possible will believe that it is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Welcome to the worst year ever. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Let's talk about running against an incumbent. Love to hear all of your perspectives. Um... You know, this this race is being framed as a runoff between two progressives. Um, <laughs> however, there's, yes, definitely a, a question of what Ryu's priorities are. Um, I'll tee this up by saying, for example, the L.A. Police Union donated, I believe, $45,000 to his campaign. To a PAC supporting him. To a him. PAC supporting yeah. him. Okay. Yeah. They, it was PAC um, money. And then he recently signed a pledge to not accept money from cops, but only after you did it. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I, I read this piece from the L.A. Times, you know, talking about during the pandemic, Ryu, you know, 
pushed for putting a rent freeze or, you know, and ended up stopping some evictions or like putting in new rules for how people's things can be dealt with at public storage and, and whatnot. But everybody's just kind of saying that this is um, gestures that seem politically uh, convenient for him. And and anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's my perception of David Ryu. Would love to hear your I thoughts. Mean, just and, if you drive around L.A., see see what houses have yard sides for him. Sure. That's a pretty good mm. <laughs> tee off. But some of our, our listeners don't live here. But yeah, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on him. And again, running against an incumbent because we know that the uh, Democratic establishment probably isn't very supportive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone lines up behind incumbents here. And so we have, you know, in L.A., we it's a nonpartisan race on paper, but it's a blue city. Everyone mm-hmm. who is in L.A. city government right now identifies as a Democrat, except for one. There's always one Republican from the Valley District sure. uh, that that is, you know, has all historically always been in in government as well. Uh, and the real story in Los Angeles is of incumbency versus non-incumbents, yeah. right? So incumbents have always lined up uh, behind one another. The the they always endorse one another. They don't really allow new voices to come in. Uh, and I think that results in real challenges to how governance happens. So, for example, there's only two women in all of L.A. elected leadership out of 18 potential elected positions. So that's oh 15 council members, 15 council members, a city attorney, a city controller and a mayor. So out of all of these positions, only two are women. And I think there's the system is is designed to keep women out, you know, is yeah. designed to keep people who are not traditionally in those roles out. So, yes, the L.A. Times article that you cited talked about how after the primary, Rue suddenly tacked towards a more progressive direction. He started pushing for policies that are more openly progressive than he has been pushing for in his career so far. I think that's really exciting Mm -hmm. because what it shows to me is that the, the policies that we're pushing for, the kind of language that we're speaking has real electoral mm-hmm. resonance in Los Angeles, has real electoral power here. And I it feels to me like elected officials can't ignore that power anymore because mm-hmm. we're all going to be showing up to the polls. I mean, I think in November, I estimate that there's going to be over 100,000 people voting in the city yeah. council race, you know, and most of those people probably voted on the more progressive end of the Democratic presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. And so you really have a huge show, potential huge show of strength for uh, more progressive policymaking in Los Angeles. And so as hard as this has been and as long as it has gone, I mean, it has gone on for so, so long. By the by November 3rd, I will have been running for 15 months. Wow. <laughs> My God. Which, that is a whole other thing. Everything starts way too early and lasts way too long these days. And oh, I so expensive. Gonna... It's so expensive. I couldn't agree more. And you know, I have to tell you that like I come to this with a significant amount of privilege and I just want to acknowledge that, you know. I have a partner, uh, my husband is working right now, and so I had to resign from my job. I was the head of a nonprofit, Times Up Entertainment. Uh, and and I was not able to do that nonprofit work and be running for mm-hmm. office at the same time. It just was not possible given the work that we did at Times Up. 
So I had to leave that job. And I haven't had a paying job since August of last year. And the only reason I'm able to do this is because my partner is able to support me through this. Is it fair that we are limiting political activity and political, you know, people who are able to be involved in politics to that kind of, um, you know, to people who are able to have that kind of support? To me, strikes me as incredibly problematic for the future Mm -hmm. of Los Angeles. You know, so absolutely. And and while so it's incredible that there is a bigger electorate coming to the polls and that is an undeniable good thing for Los Angeles. Like, I'm so glad that our municipal elections and our federal elections are overlapping. I think the challenge is that now you also need to raise a lot more money to be able to Mm -hmm. get out to all of those residents now, particularly during covid. Right. So, yes, in the primary, we were able to get volunteers excited We had over 600 unique volunteers go and knock on thousands, tens of thousands of doors across the district. And we were able to get the word out. In some ways, we were able to substitute volunteer energy for money, right? Mm -hmm. So for every five mailers that he would send, a knock on the door from an excited volunteer telling you how cool this candidate was, was way more effective. Now in COVID pandemic, um, pandemic organizing, pandemic Uh, constituent outreach, we can do phone banking, we can do text banking, we can write postcards, which all of which we're doing, but it's just not, you know, it's not the same. It's not quite the same as being able to knock on someone's door and to have a real face-to-face conversation with them and to convince them. And this is something that progressive candidates across the country are struggling with, right? And this is why I think the push for publicly financed elections has to be at the core of every single platform across America. The fact that even I spend a lot of my time fundraising, you know, means that I end up speaking to people who have money. Yeah. More. Um, I actually don't don't know that it's more than other. But you have to spend a lot of that energy. Yes. But I have to do it. Right. I, I have to do it. And I feel like other candidates I've seen do it way more um, and other politicians I've seen do it way more, you know, and it's like. How do we make sure that our priorities are not being shaped by the need for fundraising yes. and the yes. need to make sure that your 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 campaign dollars are still flowing in? The only way we can do that is through publicly financed elections. Yeah, just it's not a skill that I think we should require of our uh, leaders to have. That's not that shouldn't be involved at all. That shouldn't be a thought yeah, to be had when it, we the don't job want... is to help people. <laughs> yeah, people that are good at soliciting money and giving promises that's not that's not what we need we need people that have values that are showing up to do a job they're very different skill sets um that create a a a huge obstacle for anybody that wants to just get involved and and start making a difference at the local level do we have term limits for city council yes three terms so about 12 years okay that's good that's still a long time but that's so long (laughs) it's still a long time yeah (laughs) Shorter than forever. Um, yeah. Yes, that's right. Than none. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. But but yeah, but I do think, I mean, there is, I, I think having done nonprofit work for a really, really long time, having been an activist who's protested and uh, blocked roads in India from the very <laughs> beginning of my career, I have tried to influence policymaking in so many different ways throughout my life. And I will say that 
this effort of getting into the campaign and pushing policy dialogue in a particular direction in Los Angeles has been really, really fulfilling. Yeah. And to anyone who is thinking about running, to anyone who's thinking about who is questioning the value of being involved in electoral politics, I would encourage you to reach out to me, preferably after November 3rd, but yep. I am happy to talk to you. <laughs> Because I think no matter what happens in November, this has already been an incredibly positive campaign for Los Angeles, you know, yeah. and that's that's what I hold on to on a day to day basis. We have these volunteer onboardings. So we have tons of volunteers who are still getting involved in the race. And so we do Zoom introductions to all of them to invite them into the campaign. And. Initially, it was all people who had already been engaged on municipal policy for a long time. And as we've moved ahead in the campaign, as more people were made aware of the power of local government through the uprising, through the protests, by making connections between police brutality against against black Americans, but racial injustice as a broader question and and the role of local government in perpetuating inequity Mm-hmm. Uh, and violence, the people who started getting into those volunteer onboardings started to change. And it was people who had never engaged in local politics yeah. before, yeah. you know, who had never really engaged in politics at all. And that is that to me is durable change. I mean, that had nothing to do with this campaign. We just happened to be a place where they could put their new activist energy. You I would know? say it does have a lot to do with your campaign. But <laughs> yes, but we're a part of a bigger, much yes. bigger change. We're, we're a tiny little piece of that. And I'm very proud of the fact that we're able to be a tiny little piece of that, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. This is hard. This is a really hard year. That's the name of the podcast. Worst year. Hard year. Po- <laughs> it's a hard, hard year. year. It's not the name of the podcast. <laughs> Worst year ever. Um, and it's a lot. It's all a lot. But it's hard to find the silver linings and, and the positives. But you are 100% right that there are, are big strides uh, that are happening. Just the fact that your opponent is going to the left, the fact that people are having – there are more and more places throughout the country where people can, can, can put their progressive energy, put their – donate their time and their energy and their money into um, – you know, people like you paving the way and 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 showing people the power that we have. This is all it's not going anywhere, regardless of what happens. Mm-mm. And sometimes I could I look at everything that's happening and, and worry about how it's gonna get twisted or what steps back we're gonna take. We're not gonna take steps back. It might look like that, but there are more and more of us and and we're more and more empowered and I, I think I, I need to at least focus on that in my life to stay positive and stay and keep going for the next few months, <laughs> you yeah. know, take us through the home stretch here. Um, I do want to dive in a little bit about how how the campaign process has worked during. Oh, oh, during COVID, yeah. during COVID. Yeah, we have just tried to move. Uh, as much of the voter contact online or digital as possible. So we are really expanding our – we did some phone banking in the primary. We've really expanded our phone banking this time. We started texting much earlier. Mm -hmm. So we did one round of texting to the entire district. We're going to be doing another one. We are investing more in digital outreach this time. So we're investing more in kind of um, 
I do remember getting a text yeah. from your campaign saying, hi, do you need anything? And I was like, <laughs> what? From, a, from somebody running in politics asking if we need anything? <laughs> like, are you joking? You're treating us like we're people? Mm. Like, Humans? What? Yes. Uh, yeah. well, I'm glad that you responded that way. That's great. That's <laughs> it was you know, it was hard too because we didn't want to put at a time when people were struggling so much, we really did not want to put the campaign first, but we also did feel like we wouldn't be able to know what to do in response to people's needs unless we reached out to them first. 100%. And actually, you know, so it was like it was kind of, it was a hard few months trying to figure out, OK, how yeah. do we how do we do this outreach in a way that's really respectful of where people are in their lives right now? And at the and, same time, this is vitally important. Yeah, I think it's only made it more important that we have people in there whose primary focus is on making sure people are thriving in L.A., mm -hmm. that every resident is thriving. Uh, that, yeah, I, th I just think it's it's become the energy and the urgency that I felt has only intensified over these last few months. And I'm impatient for change. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how can what what's the best way for people to support you? I know going to the website and everything, but are you specifically looking for more volunteers um, with the phone banking, the text message stuff? Yeah, we definitely need more people on phones. Uh, we're writing postcards. We have a huge postcard writing campaign. That's only if you're in L.A., but if you're outside of Los Angeles, you can phone bank. You can spread the word on social media, follow us, share our posts, lift our platform. You can always donate to our campaign. We use mm -hmm. every dollar really efficiently. And, yeah, I think those are really the ways. If you live in the district and you know a lot of your neighbors, organize a digital event. Yes. Bring your neighbors in. Tell them about the campaign. Tell them about the change that we can have in L.A. You know, there's all kinds of ways to get involved. We actually it's on our website, nithiaforthecity.com. We have a list of ways you can help me win. Great. And <laughs> and yeah, so it's all we'll it's link all to there. her website on socials and in our episode description. Yeah. Great. Definitely check it out. Definitely follow her. I mean, everything we can do to support this campaign. But like I said at some point earlier, just your voice in general during this time has been really special and powerful. Thank so I, I, I think you guys should definitely check her out. She does very, very thoughtful threads very about issues that are very and informative. Like a credible source. You feel like you're really mm -hmm. getting the actual information and not something yeah. that's been twisted and turned to show to you, to influence you. It's yeah. just, it's authentic. It's real. It's what she, you're you're showing us what you're seeing not right. yeah something that's been manipulated or yeah well thank you i appreciate that you guys are enjoying that we put a lot of work into it behind the scenes there's a whole team of people yeah. who are doing research and citing everything and putting it together and so i'll i'm so glad that it is received well yeah. and that people are enjoying reading it yeah i mean I've shared several and I will continue to. Um, thank you again so much for, for taking time to chat with us today. Um, thank I know you our, so much for having me. I yeah, really, well, it's been such a pleasure. Good. Uh, we will be following closely and doing everything we can to support you. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much again to Nithya. Uh, if you enjoyed that, you're cool. Go check out her website, nithyaforthecity.com. 
I believe it is. It'll be linked right, in our episode description and posted on socials. Also, please follow her. She posts awesome stuff. And you can yep. also follow all of us on Twitter and Instagram at WorstYourPod. You can follow Katie at Katie Stoll. You can follow Cody at Dr. Mr. Cody. You can follow Robert on Twitter at I Write Okay. We and have a you are? public store. Oh, I'm Sophie. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and she is at Why Sophie Why. Um, <laughs> thanks again for listening, guys. You're the very best fans in all of the world that ever we were or was or will be. I'm done talking now. The end. Everything's so dumb. Everything's so dumb and it's gonna get dumber. Great. I tried. Daniel? Lovely. Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.